This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. And in that case, we can then open up the debate, which um, will be chaired by Bennett. So if, does anyone have any questions uh, on clarification for the three speakers? Actually, I, I, I have a question. With that. <laughs> I know that's, that's, that's unusual, but, but, but Lee, um, you, you, you gave very good examples of how you had different types of language um, which I would call Bix language, and you said where you wanted to get your students to. Um, what kind of strategies do you use to help your students move from one to the other? Because I think our fields and, and what I'm saying is very closely linked to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it, it's using that that teaching and learning cycle that we talked about. So, um, the the first aspect is the the building of the field, and it's something that that uh, the professor talked about about often exams will be will be written in in a kind of culturally specific. Um, context. It's about so I'm teaching my my bottom set year sevens who've all got reading ages of about seven or eight at the moment um, about why Henry established the Church of England. Um, so we we've done a lot of work. Um, they've hot seated me as Henry and um, building the field and just getting them to know the story of what happened. And now we're trying to move into how do we actually write about this in an academic way and how do they produce a factorial explanation of the three reasons that drove Henry to do that. So we're starting with the modelling and deconstruction. So the, the colleague who's working with me, we will write a model of a paragraph of how they do that. Mm. Um, we'll pull that apart. We'll, we'll show, the, show them the language features. We'll, we'll look at how that's constructed. Then we'll work with the students to uh, jointly construct it. Um, so we, we will sort of give them you know, opportunities to do that. We, we'll talk to them about it. And then the third stage is that we want them to do that independently, we want them to independently construct it. And that's, I guess, what the reference I was making to, to things like sentence stems and, and, and word banks is that if, if students are reliant on those, then they stay in that, in that dependent mode. What, what we need to yeah. do is lead them to being able to reproduce those, those things independently, yeah. especially as they're going to be tested in an exam where no one else can help them. So it's using that, that cycle of leading them to independence is the way that we're, we're trying to do it. Yeah, thank you. We have um, a couple of questions. If just, it's not a question, it's the just a comment. I was privileged um, last Friday in Birmingham to be in the lesson where Lee and the other teacher, the, uh, what I would regard as what Frank talked about earlier, uh, somebody who did the PGCE as an EAL teacher, so was an expert, what I regard as an expert. So moving students from this low ability, uh, seven five set, from witnessing it in partnership teaching, from Henry wanted to do things, so a focus on the doing, to a, a language where they were talking at the end of the lesson about Henry's desire for divorce, money, and power, a nominalization built into an extended nominalized nominal group like that at the beginning of the clause. So there wasn't talk about clause in there. So the, the issue of the metalinguistic um, awareness is critical, but that's where the students were moving, and it was a real privilege to see that lesson. Thank you. Can we take one more? Those, I think you had your hand up. It's connected to the same thing. It's... I mean, it's been touched on a few times, but the focus on oracy and collaboration and construction, because clearly, and that's where the STEMS thing, I think, is so different to what we had for a while, which is worksheets and frameworks that didn't have any space for the children to have any ownership or development, and they got trapped in those. I think STEMS, particularly if they're used orally, then readily become something that can be put onto paper, and that's where the independence comes. And that's a very big deal in the curriculum, I think, because we're supposed to be getting a big focus on oracy, and we're, we've been supposed to be getting oracy and talk and really important for years and years and years. But when it comes down to assessment, it's always the Cinderella in the corner. 
And that's to me is crucial for all all learners, but particularly yeah, learners. Just one. Could you make it brief? Yes, it, you could take it into the next session if you wanted to. I was interested in hearing a little bit more about Timothy's theory about some of the uh, methodologies like Seltzweil or CLIL and whether these can be used in this sector, which, I, if I understood you correctly, was what you were saying. But maybe you can take it into the next session. Yes, that's that's slightly longer. CLIL, you may all know it. It's a content and language integrated learning also known as Emile in French. And, and on that note, uh, moving through to... Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much uh, to Nick and the team on the platform. Uh, we're now going to do another interactive voting session because you've now had quite a lot... I found that very, very interesting indeed. I know you did. Um, so you've now had quite a lot of input here. So we're going to go back through these questions and see whether anybody's had a... A deeper thoughts and have changed their minds. We're not going to do the practice questions. We're going to go straight in to who should take the lead in ensuring that non-native speakers get the support they need to develop their English. Are we still where we were? Um, yes. Now the lead, the lead, the lead is the important bit here. And this should magically change into, no, everybody is pretty well much where they were before. If anything, um, it's um, schools going further forward. Okay, so moving on. Have you experienced a negative effect on the progress of native speakers when a teacher supports non-native speakers in the classroom? And I think we can... Continue that that is still pretty well much uh, an urban myth. On to number three. Does the current curriculum create obstacles for non-native speakers of English? Uh, and I seem to remember we had... Yes, that doesn't altogether surprise me. I think the, the general tenor of all three speakers was that it does, uh, so you've clearly been impacted there. Um, and is it important for every child in the UK to be as proficient in English as they are in their mother tongue? And actually, that's, that is going up, isn't it? Uh, those people that don't know have decided to make up their mind and possibly have gone another way. Uh, and then finally, should every subject teacher be trained to support non-native speakers in their classroom? I think there's a bit of a consensus emerging around here. It's gone up. It's gone up. Right, OK. Um, just uh, sometimes one finds these, these questions can, can be usefully added into the mix, and sometimes not. Um, let's see what we're going to do about all that as we move into the third and final audience debate. Now, this is mostly with you, and my role in this part is, in fact, to deliver some of the uh, points that some of you have wanted to make or have come in from the outside who don't want to speak um, or anything like that. So I've actually got quite a lot of these. Uh, I think you no. I think the team should stay here, um, partly because I suspect uh, I'm certainly not going to be able to answer any of these things. But this is not a question and answer session. Back to where we were before. This is this is a debate. Are we are we getting you know, are we getting anywhere? Um, I'd like to start with a couple of things. Uh, we. We've mentioned money several times, uh, and I feel it incumbent upon me um, that we did ask the DFE to come along. They weren't able to do so, but they did provide us with a statement, and I feel it, uh, it's only just, I suppose, uh, on their behalf to read out this little bit here, 
This year, the government is providing schools with £201 million in their dedicated schools grant for ethnic minority and EAL support. We believe that schools are best placed to decide how to use this money in response to local needs, whether that means buying in support, resource or specialist advice, employing additional teachers or bilingual teaching assistants, or funding other services as they see fit. So the DfE's had its chance to add its bit into the funding. Uh, now, I'd like to ask Diana Sutton from the Bell Foundation. Diana's, um, the Bell Foundation has sort of, uh, been relaunched recently, and she's very keen uh, and very focused on EAL policy. And I know she has some, something she wants to say about what we've heard so far. Diana, where are you? Actually, I was keen to pick up on the point that I raised earlier, which is are the methodologies from the sector on teaching English, ELT sector, that can be used in this sector, in the EAL sector, particularly that you mentioned, Timothy, earlier, and also young learners. It, it seems to me, coming from the outside of this field, that the, there is potentially more... Uh, sharing of, of expertise within the sector, and I'm just just keen, actually, Timothy, to hear a little bit more about that from you, or from from yourself, Frank, from other speakers on the panel. Or, or Thank you. From from Nick. Or from Nick. Yes. <laughs> uh, who who would like to pick that up first? Well, I think um, that because it has a very clear focus on content and it has a clear focus on language, you would be mad to say that it has nothing to contribute. But I think one of the issues around CLIL is that it, it has grown in second language contexts, and the context of the learner in this country is different. And I think what um, I'd also want to challenge about it is uh, the point that Pete was making very strongly, is that it doesn't necessarily challenge this uh, native speaker type norm, um, the idea that it's a monolingual norm. And I think what we need to start relaxing about is the fact that language is shifting and that we now have societies which are plurilingual, where children are using a range of repertoires and that you can't divide them up as easily as say, this is English and they've just thrown in a bit of their German there. It's a much more fluid dynamic that's taking place in language at the moment. As we move forward, it's going to become more and more fluid. So some of these issues around our very tight attempts to control written language... Uh, are doomed to failure, I think. Uh, and so there are going to be other issues about how do we respond to growing plurilingualism, translanguaging that's taking place in the world. How do we respond to that on the social level uh, that's there about the kind of societies? I was dismayed to hear Phil Woolis uh, say things uh, but that were essentially blaming uh, those communities for wanting to speak their own language and essentially saying we wasted money on trying to give them access through their own language. That's an extraordinary notion that those people are responsible for that. Instead of uh, the problem being us, the debate is framed in terms of the impact of non-native speakers in schools. What is the impact of schools on non-native speakers is another way. What is the impact of society on non-native speakers? Uh, Pete gave some very good illustrations about how we construct them. So clearly, yes, there are some very interesting technique things that we can learn from that. Uh, very dynamic approach, and it's obviously successful. Massive business going on there. Uh, but it's not going to be the only answer. We need to think more broadly. Sorry, I, just uh, from Helen Chauvet in the, in, in the audience, who also brought this up, uh, you, in a sense, you've just responded to that as, as clear 
as an English-speaking operation. Clearly, you use all over Europe to, to teach all sorts of different languages in yeah, all sorts of different continents. And in each of them, it's the same. Ah, right, the same, the same, same problems. Will be there. Yes, yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not familiar with clearly in the UK, but what I can say about some other countries, and, and definitely the Belgian context, is CLIL is very powerful. We know that. There is a lot of empirical evidence. But what we see from a migrant perspective is that most of the CLIL examples I know of is in, with status languages. It is with German, it is with French, it is with Spanish, it is with Italian. Is it with, in Flanders with Turkish, with Arabic? No. So if you introduce CLIL and only do it for status languages, this has a negative impact on migrant children as well on the cognitive level as at the non-cognitive level. Yes, could I comment? Um, pick up on, I think, three points. Um, the co whole concept of plurilingualism is, uh, it has emerged alongside um, the work of the Council of Europe with the Common European Framework of Reference. And the Common European Framework of Reference, at least in our context of Cambridge ESOL, has become a very powerful way of thinking about progression and language learning across levels as a, as a school and lifelong learning ambition. And the, the idea of plurilingualism for a single person uh, as a language learner, like myself or like any of you, is that you do develop in the course of your life a range of language skills. In fact, the, the term used is a repertoire. And whether it's language for chemistry or language um, for going to the beach in Spain, where you've picked up some Spanish, or indeed your A-level French, or uh, as you carry on through life, the language you need for... Um, your job uh, interacting with Italians or whoever it is. This creates a repertoire of skills. And this is where I think we, we need to think of language learning, not simply as a, a way of acquiring a thing. And I think that's the way uh, a single, um, if you like, monolithic thing. So you can develop repertoires in different skills. So if you need to speak, you develop speaking skills. If you need to, to, to listen or read, you develop those skills. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing to think about. Then when we come back to CLIL, um, I think it's quite different in the case of English as a, for speakers of other languages like Cambridge ESOL around the world in the context I was thinking of. Here, the focus is on learning the language predominantly. English is a foreign language, if you like. And as you go through uh, learning in schools now, in order to reach the levels that people aspire to, actually contextualizing the language in, with content has, is proving to be very helpful. But that's quite different, it seems to me, than the immersion model we have in the UK, where you have to study through the medium of English. And the question arises is, at what point is it useful to focus on form, to actually get, as we heard from speakers this morning, to, to actually attend to the parts of the language which would be helpful in, in improving their skills, particularly their academic proficiency. Uh, and um, that raises the point of what sort of assessment we should do, either at the end of the process or during the process. And we are now, um, certainly in Cambridge ESOL, thinking at better ways in linking the outcomes with the process of learning using the concept of learning-oriented assessment. Uh, and indeed, that ties up with the point I've just made. of At what point in learning, in scaffolding learning, can you get people to attend to things 
assessing whether or not they can do it or how well they can do it, and then giving them feedback in order to get improvement, not simply to, to score them or to, or to categorize them in some way. So I think that, that idea of learn, learning-oriented assessment, which links what goes on in the classroom to, to the outcome levels that, that are needed in society, is a very important new, new um, departure and what we need to focus on. Yes, right, at the very front, if you would. So that, that lady, I beg your pardon. Um, we've, I have to stand up. Um, I'm Judith Evans. I'm from the Collaborative Learning Project. I am quite old, and when I was first a teacher in Ilia, we had something called the primary language record, which was, I think, the best assessment, ongoing, looking at, evaluating language tool that has ever existed. And it disappeared, and I think we could usefully look at bringing it back rather than trying to start again from somewhere else. That would be my mission in life, if I could achieve that. Sorry, could, could, you, just, could, you, could you just expand on that a teeny bit? Well, the primary what, language, what did do? The yes. primary language record, which obviously was not in secondary schools, yeah. you can tell by its name, and some teachers didn't like it because it didn't fit on the shelf. Right. That was an issue, but if you bought a washing powder box, you could store them in that, so it was all fine. Um, you, look, you, d- you evaluated your children. You didn't do your whole class in one test on one day. You, you worked through them in right. bits. And you looked at their use of language in all contexts. So you looked at how they talked on the playground. Against a set of criteria? Yes. You, you, you had a model of development that you were assessing against. And you, looked, you talked to their families about how they use language at home. You looked at their reading. You looked at the work they were doing. You talked to the children about how they use language. So they told you what they did at the mosque or things like that. So you had, as a teacher and as a primary class teacher, you spent all the hours. Your children's language development is in your hands. You had such a holistic picture of every single child's learning. And you had time to do it because you weren't doing SATs or anything like that or phonics tests or any horrific things like that. You were actually doing things that mattered. And you knew where children were, and then you could produce wonderful activities where they were talking to each other, where they were learning across the curriculum. And I think language development was better when we had that mm. than when we've had anything we've had since. That's my humble view. Mm. And it's not just because I've got older and tired and less energetic. Thank, 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 thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, it does sometimes feel that like we all go around in a great big circle every so often in education. Um, I've got a couple of others uh, coming from, from the audience or, or, or online. Um, somebody's making the, the perfectly reasonable point that English language-speaking teachers cannot alone understand the exact needs of the student, appreciate the crucial relevant factors, bridge the language difference, and deal with the other important issues that are going on in the classroom. Uh, is there a role for language education assistance? Not education assistants that do this, that and the other and a little bit of language on the side but language assistants uh, in, in the classroom engaged yeah. all the time for that interesting question about whether that's, in, that's important um, still on cultural matters um, Rona Grabowski from Luton Borough Council um, wants to pick up a point that Philida made in terms of um, the, the, the report back to students, the, the feedback to students, um, in a supportive manner. And she points out, and you, you, I may have this wrong, Rhoda, um, because your, your, your writing is even worse than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, as I understand what you're saying here is actually that by and large, um, uh, uh, teachers tend not to deliver, don't want to deliver critical comments on a whole range of learning. Um, they, they want to do, they, they want to scaffold, they want to build, they want to be positive, so they don't like to do critical. But actually, when it comes to uh, building the language facility, you may have to be perhaps more critical than you are in other contexts. Do it I have that? It's slightly critical, but it's sort of correcting in a supportive way to help the student. Cor cor correcting in, in a supportive way. Um, and, and, and then there, there are challenges that follow from that, depending on the, the cultural context in which you find yourself. Yeah, it's a sort of reluctance to, to correct because we're all so impressed with how well they're getting on, that once they've sort of reached their level in their SATs or their GCSE results, and somebody else said how it can seem to regress sometimes after they've done their GCSEs, it's a feeling, well, they've caught up now, but they need, still need that extra input for really perfecting it, and they're able to do it if we help them with it, but they're not if we don't. And because they're all watching their own TV channels now at home, yeah. because of satellite TV, they're not hearing good modelling sort of after the end of the school day either. So it needs it in a way almost more. As I go back to, to, to was it Frank, uh, who was talking about taking, taking language away because they've got enough. Yes, Can I just make one point on that there as well? That we had um, an attempt to look at formative assessment in this country, and uh, the, the fantastic work done by Paul Black on that went into a, a downward spiral when it became politicised and, and became something quite different. But what was, what was beginning to happen was the um, APP, the Assessment of Pupil Progress, and there was an attempt to develop that specifically for EAL learners because it was recognised, again, that it was this monolingual model and it wasn't really working for EAL students. And quite a bit of money was spent on uh, working on that on EAL, and the government, the ZFE, have sat on it, and they've refused to publish those materials. Now, there are things that are in there that, that were genuinely trying to get to the heart of this issue about feedback to students and this progressive training in the classroom, which I think lies at the heart of all education, is formative assessment, working with the child in that progressive way uh, that was there once under the IADA, I suppose, but not wanting to, to go back over the past. But, you know, we, we, we've come to a point now where language is being deliberately hidden, and I, you know, and I, I don't pull my punches on this one. The DFE has refused to publish those materials, as they did with, with the link materials with Ron Carter uh, in the previous um, Conservative administration. This is not a political point. Yes, it is. But it, they did that then as well. And there is this attempt to hide language issues because there is an agenda to have this monolingual 1950s Britain presented to us. And that's not where we live. And it's shameful. Yeah, by all means, yes. And then... Uh, the, and just comment briefly on, um, from a perspective, again, as English uh, as a foreign language... Uh, um, we saw a turn in the 1980s which focused on language as communication, and for many people that meant they didn't focus on grammar anymore. Mm. Actually, that was a mistake, and what, um, what the question is really is, at what point and in what way is it appropriate to focus on form in the development of a learner in order to, as uh, Frank was saying, to provide the formative uh, input to help them move to the next stage in the sort of Vygotskyan way? Uh, we've recently been doing research in Cambridge on the concept of criterial features of L2 English, which is to try and work out, as you go through the progression from uh, a beginner to a, a proficient um, learner, what, what uh, a, a learner be begins to master at what stage, 
And therefore, how you can, for different learners, in a more individualized way, give them feedback which is going to help them move on. So indeed, to focus on form, that's the, the, the grammar and lexis, uh, in, in contexts which are actually usable for learning purposes. And I think this is an important point which we've been hearing about today. Um, I want to just uh, address a couple of other things that come up uh, onto, as it were, the severely practical, but which links in to what we've just been talking about. You know, EAL ceases when you've had enough. It is also interesting, we don't have an exam board, uh, somebody from uh, a UK exam board here today to, to answer this sort of question, but uh, it would appear that you can't ask for extra time for your EAL student if they've been here more than two years. We're back to the how much is enough. So it looks like the entire system uh, predicates a level at which you no longer need any assistance. Uh, and that cut-off can be three years, can be two years, can be, as you pointed out, enough. And who makes those kinds of decisions? Worth, I suspect, raising uh, with government in terms of policy. After all this, we're going to be sending a few things to government as to what we've discovered. Um, so those were those. Um, a uh, couple of more interesting... Well, there's similar sort of lines. Again, we don't have anybody who can answer these things, but of course things are changing at GCSE. Modular courses are going. It's generally accepted that if you're an EAL student, modular course is probably, probably more suited uh, to the way in, in which you learn. Modular courses are going. They're about to come there. Um, uh, controlled assessment rather than coursework. Um, and then you're going to have... Uh, additional spelling and grammar added into all GCSEs. These are clearly going to have an impact on, well, not specifically EAL learners, quite a lot of learners. Um, so uh, th th those are interesting facts that I think we, we, we need to put into the mix, the policy mix. I'm not sure, is there anybody here from OCR who would actually like to say anything about these things? Oh, yes? Jane Gogarty from OCR. In actual fact, I'm part of the language team that develop um, set exams in foreign languages, i.e. not in English exams, but in foreign languages. I'm also part of the um, Asset Languages um, project from fairly early on in its development. And there's been a number of points made about bilingualism and um, making that a norm rather than something that's um, seen as uh, an odd thing to do. And through the asset languages work, we have seen that where students for whom English is not a first language, where they have been supported in their own language, they are motivated, they see that having their own language is something that is worthwhile, and especially in students who have been disaffected within school, they have been turned around because they see that what they've actually got is something worthwhile. That, that's not saying that they shouldn't be supported in English. Of course they should. But they, their own language learning shouldn't be um, sidelined because it is very important. And I also think that... Um, a point has been made about people who, for whom learning the grammar of English, an English speaker not understanding the grammar of English, when they learn a second language and being taught, asked about verbs and adverbs and things and how difficult that is to relate to another language. Think about a, a student for whom English isn't the first language and they are given supported work 
in English and talked about verbs and that sort of thing if they don't know what that is or how that relates to their own language. Supporting them in their own language can give that and give them a way of relating to English and actual fact improve their ability to learn English as a second language. Thank you very much. Uh, Pete, you, you had a... No, I, I would strongly like to support that, and that's what we experienced in, in, in the experiment, four-year experiment we are doing in, in, in primary schools and kindergarten schools in, in, uh, in, in Flanders. All of the teachers were not in favor of having the, the plurilingual uh, experiment. They were all against the idea. Their main concern was it will not contribute on the, in, in, on the country. It, it, will, uh, it, it, it will slow down the, the, the L2 uh, Dutch learning processes. Already after one year in the interviews we did with the teachers, they all said these children are now much more motivated, not, not only in terms of their self-esteem and, and, and their awareness of their, their own language, but much more motivated to be involved in the learning of Dutch. It, they, they, they came to, to the teacher and they said, teacher, this word, what, what, what does it mean in Dutch? Uh, my, my, my boyfriend says it in Turkish, but I'm interested. All kind of these dynamics suddenly popped up due to the fact that the plurilingual repertoires were used and exploited by, by the teachers. Yeah, I think it's very important also, as I said, in the learning of uh, Dutch in, in our case. I, I have to say I, I suspect that that has a lot more to, to do with having an integrated, coherent program there. I think what Phil Willis was talking about earlier were people just taking GCSE in home language because they could take the GCSE in home language, not because there was any kind of coherent bringing together in the school of the learning of the home language and the learning of English and building them together. Would that be...? But, but yes, but... <laughs> no, sorry, okay. Pete, Pete first. Yes. No, no, I, 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 I take that point. And, and again, I, I, I can only speak for the Flemish context, but I, I, I had my doubts, and, and, and to some extent I, I, I tended to disagree with what... Um, Phil has said mm -hmm. in what, what, on the basis of, of research we've done with migrant parents in Flanders all parents, all parents the first concern is we want our kids to learn Dutch mm -hmm. it is a completely misunderstanding amongst mainly politicians with all my respect about the fact that migrant parents are not interested in uh, their children learning um, the, the, the second language and I think this is important to take into account in the way we perceive and deal and communicate with parents I, I echo the same point I, did, I didn't agree with the point that this perpetuated the problem, I, I didn't feel um, that, that, that that was correct um, I think it's very important actually um, what's being said, that the, the children are encouraged to make comparisons between their first language and, and then the second language and look at systems and so on there's, there's so much cognition goes on there it's being proved through translanguaging and all kinds of things which are going on now so I, th I think it's a really important component of language learning I'm afraid we're running out of time, so I'm going to finish on a point from Christine Braun from Lancashire. Uh, very simple yet deceptively complicated question. How do you develop, uh, allowing for we need academic language, allowing for metalinguistic skills, etc., how do you develop the linguistic awareness and expertise of mainstream teachers? Any advice, please? Yeah. There we are. I'm going to leave that now. I'm going to leave that with you. You chaps all have as much time as you like to answer that question. I possibly buy the book. I use that one of them. Um, but if anybody else, yes. if anybody else has got anything to share, by all means share it now, or by all means stand up and say, I am happy to talk to somebody afterwards if you've got any ideas on this. Uh, right. Uh, I'm going to start out here then. I shall start with Lee, then, yes, the lady there, and then over there. Yeah, just to, uh, you know, I think 
the main thing I've taken from this is it's confirmed my uh, suspicion that what we need to do is start with teachers and their knowledge about language. And, and, and it's a CPD issue for existing teachers and it's a, a teacher training issue for, for new colleagues coming into the, the system. Um, so just to, uh, yeah, just to plug what we're doing at Parkview, um, we are using that, that functional model of language um, through uh, some professional development courses that I've been on and other colleagues have been on to try and create uh, uh, some evidence that, that um, we're, we're having an impact on the students' learning. And we're working with an academic from Aston University, Dr. Ursula Clark. She's writing an MA module for our teachers to um, take this and, and put it into practice through action research in the classroom and write it up as a dissertation. That'll be starting next year. Um, and we're also in the process of, of putting together a bid to the Education Endowment Fund for about a million and a half pounds to do this in other schools. So... If there's anybody here that wants to know more about that, wants to uh, find out about that, and we can we can include you in our in our thinking, please do come and speak to me because, well, you know, I think this is the the thing we need to do. We need to to train teachers. We need to trial it in the classroom. We need to give them support of consultants um, and people who can do that with them through action research. Get them get them to write it up, and then convince other people that it's the way forward as well. So if anyone wants to know more about that, come and come and speak to me. The lady immediately behind. Thank you. Um, as, this, as you said that um, you are going to write to the government as a result of this um, today's meeting and uh, in our pack there is a, a handout which is a brief summary of the government um, everyone has got it um, I see I, you have redlined it all <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes um, I, I just like um, everyone's opinion here uh, with regards to page one when uh, it, um, you know when EAL's pupils are referred to as black and minority ethnic is, is that still appropriate to use, this terminology? Also, page, page four, um, saying that um, under the title of um, community cohesion, government um, believes that uh, promoting tolerance and building harmonious communities is important. But this sort of um, promoting tolerance, um, it's really a lot of us have got problems with that because... Um, because English is not our first language, we've learned the word tolerance means, and the dictionary's um, definition is the same, that it's something that you put up with, um, and you don't really like it, but you put up with it. So government is actually um, wants to promote this tolerance towards these people. It actually creates immediately some sort of hostile sort of feeling that, oh, my God, you know, these aliens that have got to tolerance. Um, yeah. And, that, and the final, final point is that... Um, um, is it appropriate for ESOL learners to be under the same umbrella as the basic skills, um, which, which is now referred to as a slightly better sort of terminology as essential skills, but still dealing with people with low literacy, numeracy, and they've got special needs. So um, is it still uh, appropriate? I think you've know, identified the reason why we're having this conversation. Um, Right, uh, I, we, I, we're going to finish up there, ladies and gentlemen, because I know people want to get back home. Um, thank you all very much for coming. May I say that much of my job consists in translating what politicians say to teachers and vice versa. I think you will find the word tolerance in political language is a different word altogether. We're back to chemistry, and what does that mean? Um, we're all talking slightly different languages all of the time, and something to be aware of even before we get into the classroom. Thank you very much for coming. I think it's been incredibly interesting. I think it's been the, may I say, the, the, the only intelligent debate on this area, which we were warned in advance, is quite crackly. There are all sorts of, 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 of political correctness and uh, challenges within this area. 
Um, but I think uh, we have addressed very real problems. I think there are one or two themes in there where we've actually come close to answers or consensus. Um, we will be writing this up. It can all be watched again uh, on the Cambridge Assessment website. We will be putting up all of the presentations. So those of you that are looking for the, the email addresses and so on and so forth will find them up on the, up on the website. Um, and we will then, I think, be writing to, uh, to the, 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 the government on the issues that we've raised here, and that will then also be going up on the website when I finally have time to get around to drafting it. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.